0: Welcome to The Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church Lagos. We hope this sermon answers the doubts or questions that you have about the gospel, its relevance to your life, and the ever-evolving culture around us. Our vision is to see the city of Lagos and beyond renewed by the gospel, and to make that happen, we need your support. You can do this by rating this podcast, following us, and giving through the Give tab on our website, citychurchlagos.com. Thank you for your generosity. We pray this sermon impacts you positively with the gospel. Good
1: morning, church. Our reading this morning is from Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6a. At the end of the reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying thanks be to God. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Amen. We're going to sing that song one more time. And as we sing it, tell God, fix me. Meet me today by your word, through your word. Fix me, fix me, fix me, fix me. Oh God. onward is my state.
0: What your love says to me
2: Make me more like you, Jesus. Make me more like you, Jesus. Fix me. Fix me. Fix me. physician is here the great physician now is near God is here to fix you stretch out your hand in faith to God stretch out your heart in faith to God and tell him fix me God oh Jesus oh Jesus your mercy is here to help us fix us Jesus Oh Jesus fix us fix us Lord we ask so oh God that you will heal us of all our issues We ask so oh God that your mercy will reach out and touch us at the point of our need Oh like the hymn says he spares the drooping heart to cheer oh hear the voice of Jesus we ask that each and every one of us will hear your word today in the name of Jesus Lord we bless your name we give you praise for what you are about to do in the name of Jesus Amen Amen Good morning everybody and welcome We are continuing our series in the book of Mark. It's titled, Understanding the Son of God. And today we are going to be in Mark chapter six, from verse one to six. Now, when preparing for this sermon, I was thinking about life in general. And it it was just interesting that, even though we come from different backgrounds and different cultures, there are some things that we have in common, regardless of our backgrounds, regardless of our differences. For example, values. There are values that transcend every culture. For example, every culture believes that, almost every culture believes that it's good to honor your parents, that it's bad to betray your friends. But it's not just values that are universal or that are common, they are also common experiences that we have as well. They are common to human beings. Things like love, things like fear, things like breakfast. <laughs> There are experiences that are common to all of us, but the human experience that we're going to be talking about today is something called finish." It's a universal human experience as well. In fact, it's so common that many cultures have a saying that refers to this. So the British, for example, will say that familiarity breeds contempt. Here's one from the Igbo culture. If a snake does not show its venom once in a while, children will start using it to tie firewood. (laughs) But the one I like the most is impeding, and it says this, feel at home. No means to make you fry five eggs. (laughs) And like the Bible tells us, we do not have a high priest that is not taught by the feeling of our infirmities, but was tempted in every respect as we are. Jesus himself was not exempt from this experience. And today in our text, we'll see Jesus experiencing sea finish in his village, Nazareth. How did this happen? It happened because they could not see beyond their narrow view of him. And it's a very weird passage. It's it's a somehow passage. But we'll see that we also are guilty of the same thing as well. But also, God desires to reveal himself to us as he truly is. And so in this sermon titled, Jesus is more. We are going to be considering this under three headings more than a carpenter, more than a savior, and more than our unbelief. I'm going to say it again Jesus is more than a carpenter, Jesus is more than a savior, and Jesus is more than our unbelief. So let's go right into it, my first point. So, A bit of background, Jesus had been in Capernaum, where we saw the past few Sundays. And now, in verse 1 and 2, he goes to his hometown, Nazareth, with his disciples. And I want us to imagine the scene together. Nazareth was a very small village. Bible historians will tell it was between 200 and 500 people in population, at best. It was kind of those kind of places that nothing really happened there. Do you know those places? When I think about Nazareth, it reminds me of... Yobe State. <laughs> I feel like the only time we hear about Yobi State is when they're announcing election results. <laughs> <But> <laughs> that's not actually true. Actually, the, <laughs> the, the biggest cattle market in West Africa is actually in Yobi State. But you get my point. Nothing really happened in Nazareth. I like it on Yobi State, sorry. Nothing really happened there. So I will imagine that this is a big day in Nazareth. Jesus going there. And if you've ever experienced someone grow up in your neighborhood and then become famous and return to visit, you understand the sense of excitement that would have been in the air. I remember why growing up, this was like 25 years ago, there was a guy who lived on my street. His name was Joseph and he somehow made it into the Golden eaglet. That's Nigerian national football team. The junior football team. And when he came back, everybody was just so excited. Sometimes you may not even know the person that well, there may be several degrees of separation between you guys, but there's just that sense of ownership and vicarious accomplishment that you feel. Now, Joseph went on to become, to play for the Super Eagles. In fact, he became the captain of the Super Eagles. I'm talking about Joseph Yobo. And even though I don't know him personally, <laughs> whenever he played, there's just that sense of, ah, now our guy with that. We all love this idea of the local boy that has made it big. And so you can imagine the atmosphere that should have, or should have had, pervaded Nazareth. And so it's no surprise that when it comes to the Sabbath on that day, Jesus is asked to speak in the synagogue. Does that make any sense? And what happens when he does? Verse 2, many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. And now his sister's not here with us. And if you're not familiar with this story, you won't notice anything off at first. It seems like genuine surprise. In fact, the word there means to be struck out of your senses. It means that Jesus blew their mind. And I can imagine someone would have said, ah, I remember when we used to play together on the streets. That someone would have said, ah, he always used to carry first in class. And I was among the first five, you know. I can imagine somebody walking walking up to his mother and asking her, Mary, did you know that your baby boy will someday become a rabbi? That's what we would expect. And so this is why the next verses in this passage are extremely shocking. Verse 3 goes on to say, and they were offended at him. They were scandalized at him. It's a genuinely wild story. The plot is that we could not have seen coming. How do you move so quickly from astonishment to offense? From admiration to scandal? And I know this happens on Twitter every two market days, so we are somewhat desensitized to it. But it's actually something that is very strange. And so it means that we need to go back to verse 2 and read it again. And if you read it through the lens of offense, a different picture begins to emerge. It begins to take a different tone. Most as if what they are saying is, ah, now wow. The butterfly thinks himself a bird. <laughs> <laughs> they are calling for horned animals. Even the snail itself is answering presents. <laughs> See what they say. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? Ah, how are such mighty works done by his hands? Ah. Is this not the carpenter? Ah, son of Mary? Ah, ah. Now wow. And some people have added, nothing berries no go see for chimo head. <laughs> they are offended at Jesus. <laughs> Let's calm down. And there are a number of things going on here, but i are going to talk about just two of them. They are offended because of their previous experience of Jesus, where they say, Is this not the carpenter? And secondly, therefore, they question his authority to bring wisdom to them. Let's take the first one. They're offended because of their previous experience of Jesus. Now notice, every single thing they said about Jesus was correct. They got the names of his brothers correct. They got his occupation correct. They knew his mother. Yet, knowing accurate things about Jesus did not stop them from being offended at him. And this is just a it's such a sobering thought because it tells us that knowing about God is not the same thing as knowing God. In the case of the people of Nazareth, the issue was that while their knowledge of Jesus was correct, their knowledge of Jesus was incomplete. It reminds me of the story, the famous story of five blind men and the elephant. That five blind men went to five blind men saw. Sorry. Five men met an elephant and each of I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Each of them taught a different part of the elephant and so came to different conclusions about it. One of them taught the tail and said, Ah, an elephant is like a rope. Another one taught the side and said, Oh, it's like a tree. One taught the um trunk and said an elephant is like a snake. One touched the tusk, he says like a spear. One touched the ear and said it's like a fan. And they began to argue and argue and argue and argue. Were they all correct? Yes. Were they all wrong? Yes. For the people of Nazareth, the only thing that Jesus could possibly be possibly be was a carpenter. It didn't matter that, like they like knowledge. This guy was performing miracles as well, they knew. They could only see one side of him and so were blinded to everything else. And we have a tendency to do this with Jesus as well. To elevate one characteristics of, of, of characteristic, one trait of Christ to a point where we do not see anything else. And like the blind men, we can end up with a conclusion that is totally different from who Jesus really is. Is an elephant like a rope? Yes. Is an elephant a rope? No. But here's the dangerous part. Even though the resulting image from us doing that thing, being focused on just that one thing, even though the resulting image is not the real Jesus, it often looks a lot like the real Jesus. And so we are tempted to say, ah, half a loaf is better than none. At all, at all, I in bad parts. But to do that will be a terrible mistake. Here's how Soren Kierkegaard, in 19th century Danish philosopher, put it. He said, imagine a kind of medicine that possesses in full dosage a laxative effect that makes you purge but in a half doses, in a half dose a constipating effect it stops you from purging suppose someone is suffering from constipation but for some reason or the other perhaps because it is feared that such a large amount might be too much he is giving with the best intentions a half dose after all it's at least something What a tragedy. And he goes on to say, So it is with today's Christianity. The tragedy of our half doses of Christ is that they do not make us better, they make us worse. And I want to ask us, brothers and sisters, what half dose of Jesus have we taken? Maybe we see God as only grace. And we can elevate this so much that we see nothing else. And we begin to say things like, love keeps no record of wrongs, and so God is love, so God will not send anybody to hell, send you to hell, regardless of how you live your life. And this kind of thinking can lead to terrible choices. I know someone, not in this church, a young Christian that was trying to do the right thing. And then they had a guest minister that came and presented this half-dose of Christ to them. And the guy said, from church, he went straight to go and commit fornication. Our half doses of Christ do not make us better, but they make us worse. Or maybe we see Jesus as only a rewarder. And he is. But if that's all we see, we begin to think that if only we put in the right input, we'll get the results we want. And what happens when life doesn't turn out how we expect? We get offended at Jesus. How dare he not conform to my expectations? I sowed the seed. Where's my thousand-fold harvest? I have been faithful to God. All these other ladies that are outside, not, not doing any, all these ladies are outside. They are getting married before me, not just married, happily married to good men, And I'm still here. And not to discount the way we feel, but we must also ask ourselves, is it that Jesus actually disappointed you? Or is the root of the matter that you are holding his shirts for promises that the real Jesus never gave in the first place? Our half doses of Jesus do not make us better. They make us worse. Here's the scariest thing about half doses. Sometimes our half dose of Jesus can lead us to eternal damnation. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7 verse 22-23 to that on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, they will not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name and I will declare to them I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness how is it that they thought they belonged to Jesus yet they did not they won't have what you would assume is evidence that they did but yet Jesus said I never I never knew you and the answer is that they trusted in a Jesus that did not exist They took a half dose of Jesus. Our half doses of Christ will not make us better. They will make us even worse. And the half dose responsible for what Jesus is talking about here may surprise you. But I think it's one of the most common wrong ideas about Jesus. See what Jesus said is responsible. The previous verse, verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. If we were to put it in other words, the half-dose is this, that Jesus is only a Savior. My second point. What do I mean? The half-dose of Jesus as a Savior is this idea that Jesus only came to save us from our sins. And yes, he did die for our sins, don't get me wrong. The gospel tells us that. But that's not all the gospel tells us. What is the gospel? Here's the definition: the gospel is the good news that the incarnate crucified Savior, Jesus Christ, is now what? The risen Lord and impending judge of the world. The gospel teaches us that Jesus is not only our savior, he is also our Lord and has the right to tell us how we ought to live our lives. But we don't want that, do we? But like the husband in those old Nollywood movies that will tell his wife, you can enter here, you can enter here, You can enter here, for this part. Enter and of course, you enter and she'll see a calabash with a head inside vomiting money. And I tell you, you've violated the source of my, my, the, my reason for living. And so, you have to go. And we do the same thing to Jesus as well. We want to compartmentalize our lives. Hey, God, you can touch this side, but this part out of bounds. It's okay for Jesus to save me from the penalty of my sins, but my money. Out of bounds, my comfort, out of bounds, my anger issue, out of bounds, my unforgiveness, out of bounds, my loss, out of bounds. In other words, yes, Jesus, you can be my Savior, but you cannot, you will not be the Lord of my whole life. And the people of Nazareth do something similar in that they are not only blinded by their previous experience of Jesus, they also question His authority to tell them how to live. How do I mean? One of the questions the people of Nazareth ask in verse 2 is this, what is this wisdom given to him? Now notice, they are not disputing the accuracy of Jesus' wisdom. They are disputing its validity on their lives. It's not so much an issue of what you're saying Jesus is wrong, as much as it is, a, who are you to tell me how to live my life? But what is wisdom? Now, The most popular definition of wisdom is that wisdom is the right application of knowledge. Well, in my opinion, a better way—an an an, an older and better way of defining wisdom—is from Thomas Aquinas, the medieval theologian, and he describes wisdom as the act of ordering things well. In other words, wisdom is about prioritizing. It's this idea that there are many things competing for our attention, competing for our affections, competing for our love. And what makes you wise is that you rank them according to their true order of importance. Does that make any sense? And so if, and so like like many times we are like the people of Nazareth in that we are not necessarily arguing with Jesus' wisdom and his ranking. We simply reject it. And the reason we reject his ranking is because even though we see him as savior, we do not see him as Lord. For example, our work. God calls us to take our work as a calling. That's what vocation means. That your work is a divine assignment. It's a divine calling to you. Colossians chapter 3 tells us that we should work as if God were our boss. And this applies regardless regardless of if your boss is toxic. Regardless of if you're being paid what you think you're worth. That's how we're supposed to look at our work. But what do we do instead? We prioritize our comfort above this calling. And work really hard at doing the barest minimum. We are saying, like the people of Nazareth, what wisdom is this? Even though God calls us as parents to raise our children, Ephesians 6, Ephesians 6 verse 4, to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, the idea of Christ. is talking about a training regimen designed to lead them to know and love Jesus. What do we rank as more important? Extracurricular activities. Foreign languages. Coding. We are saying, and it's funny, but we have kids that are almost teenagers and do not know a single verse of the Bible. We are saying, like the people of Nazareth, what wisdom is this? Even though God calls husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And for wives to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. What do we do, both men and women? We rank our ego above our marriage. We rank our need to be right and to prove a point above the desire to live in peace. We are saying like the people of Nazareth, what wisdom is this? Notice, we are not necessarily disproving Jesus' ranking. We just want to do what we want. In the words of Tinkela, most people want Jesus as a consultant but not as a king. Have I described you? Is Jesus your savior, but not your Lord? Is he your consultant, or not your king? Here's a warning that we see all over the scriptures, that if we persist in this, if we continue to reject his lordship, we eventually get what we want. Because you see, there are only two kinds of people in the end, like C.S. says. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Hear the words of Jesus again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. So what do we do about this? Where do we go from here? I think we can start by having our view of God expanded beyond the half doses we have of him. Well, here's the thing. We cannot discard these false images by ourselves. If we discard it, we'll go to yet another false image. And that's what, I think that's part of the reason why the second commandment is that do not make any graven image of God. Why? Because if we try to imagine God, we will come up, certainly come up with the wrong idea about him. We need help to discard our false images of Christ. And I talked earlier about the story of the five blind men and the elephant. And the interesting thing about that story, and lots of people have pointed this out, the crucial thing about that story is that it's told from the point of view of somebody that can see. Somebody who knows what an elephant is actually like. In the same way, we need someone who knows the full story, who has seen the full picture to tell us who Jesus really is. And where can we find such a person? 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 11 gives us a hint. He says, "For no one knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person. For who knows the, the, a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We need God Himself to show us who He is and the goodness that He has already in the Scriptures. In the Bible, we see that the real Jesus is more than anything we could have ever imagined." That he is not just a savior, he is not just a rewarder, he is not just a healer, he is not just a deliverer, he is not just a judge, he is not just a lover. He is all these things put together and more. We see that he is God himself, the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything, eternal, infinite, unchangeable in his power and perfection. Well, guess what? He is even more than that. Here's one more thing the Bible talks, says about him. It says in Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And I like how an author exp- explains it. He says, in the same way we cannot see without eyes, we cannot taste without our tongues, we cannot hear without our ears, we cannot be without God. God is being itself and our being is hard in his being. We like to think of God as an invisible old man in the sky. Well, he's something else entirely. And also the Bible keeps telling us over and over when it says God is holy, it means that God is totally different from us. The words we use about him, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, are good words, but they are only approximations. They are quantitative, not qualitative. Because you see, omnipresent means that, yeah, God is everywhere, but he restricts God to place omniscience restricts God to what can be known but God is far beyond that he is beyond description he is beyond the capacity of our minds to take in and the thought that this God will lay aside his majesty and empty himself and become a human to save us should blow our minds anytime we think about it it makes it all the more tragic that this God came to these people in Nazareth he lived among them and they dismissed him as just a carpenter but people of Nazareth are not the only people to do this because the Bible tells us in John chapter 1 verse 10 that he was in the world and the world was made through him but the world knew him not he came to his own but his own did not receive him Brothers and sisters, if we must not make the same mistake, if we must avoid this pitfall, we need to look to where God has revealed himself authoritatively in his word. And we stumble at this because we want something more. Many times we're like, Naaman, the Syrian general in 2 Kings chapter 5, that was a leper and he was asked to go and wash in the Jordan. And he was offended. He was like, I thought Elisha would come out and do some some things. I wanted something more genginal. And so you thought probably this sermon was going somewhere. And now you're hearing I'm saying "Should you read your Bible. And you're like, what on earth is that? Last week we came, Pastor Femi told us, locate and meditate, memorize and utilize. Every time, this Bible, this Bible, this Bible. And so many times, we end up prioritizing weird stuff, ridiculous stuff. Because surely there must be some rasmatas. We want something more mystical to show us that ah, God is actually working. And I agree with you. Now, the Bible does look ordinary. But as we begin to read it and learn more about God, <clears throat> something begins to happen to us. We begin to see that our capacity to engage the mystery that is God is becoming enhanced and enlarged. More accurately, we begin to truly encounter God. And how do we know that we are ca- encountering God? Here's one way we know we are encountering God when our worship becomes deeper. I' more meaningful. It's a word that is often used when people come in contact with God. And that word is glory. Glory means weight. It means heaviness. It's this idea that God is so big that he displaces everything else. And it's essentially what happens with worship. Worship is a restoration of our sense of proportion. It reminds us that we are not the center of the universe, but we have been displaced by glory, by the weight of God. Do you see? Worship is both a diagnosis and a cure. It tells us whether we are encountering God, but also it's an invitation to be placed in our right position as creatures and God as almighty creator. And so in Psalm 95, it tells us, it invites us, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the sheep of his pasture. We are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, we are either turning towards God in worship or turning away from him with hard hearts. Our view of God is either getting bigger and making us new before him or our view of God is getting narrower and making us bow before other things. Unfortunately, the sad truth is that far too often like Jeremiah 2 verse 13 says, we abandon the spring of living water and opt for half doses. False images that will disappoint us. Broken cisterns I can hold no water. And the Bible tells us that the root of all of this, whether it manifests itself as rejecting God's wisdom, or it manifests itself as putting God in a box, or it manifests itself as refusing to worship him as God, at the root of this is unbelief. Unbelief is an unwillingness to accept that Jesus is who he says he is and to trust in our own wisdom instead. If you go back to our text, we see the next verses, verse 5 and 6, are one of the most tragic in the entire scripture. It says that Jesus could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus could do no mighty work there. And this is really strange, and so we need to take some time to to talk about it. Now, we must understand, even though the word used there is could can, it's not a question of Jesus' ability. It's not that Jesus was trying to heal somebody and the person did not get healed. Or that he tried to cast out a demon and the demon said, ah, show you, they want me. No. (laughs) How do I know? Because even though the Bible blames unbelief here, there are many other instances that Jesus performed miracles without requiring faith. In fact, three weeks ago, we saw in Mark chapter 4 that he specifically rebukes the disciples for their unbelief when he calms the sea. And so what is going on here? I believe it has to do with the nature of miracles. My third point. That's a what the Bible often uses when speaking of miracles. It calls them signs. Why? Because the works were not just there for the sake of being there. They were pointers for us to pay attention to who Jesus really is. And so what is going on here is that the minds of the people of Nazareth were so opposed to the idea of Jesus being more than a carpenter that there was no point performing any miracles. Does that make any sense? It's like the best example I can give is like cracking single jokes about the Kenolumidee. No matter how funny it is, it will never give what it's supposed to give because the time has passed. <laughs> Miracle, not a tired Jesus. <laughs> and so, in the same way, miracles will not have changed anything in Nazareth. But this kind of hard heartedness is baffling. In fact, it says in verse 6 that Jesus himself was amazed by their own belief, he was shocked. And this is significant because there's only one other place in the Bible where the Bible tells us that Jesus is amazed. It's in Luke chapter 7, the story of the centurion. This guy's servant was sick and he sent a message. Jesus was going to heal him, but he sent a message and told Jesus not to come, but to only speak a word because he believed in Jesus' authority. And Jesus was amazed at his faith. And so if we compare these two stories of amazement, it helps us understand the depths of unbelief that these guys are exhibiting here. In the case of the centurion, Jesus is amazed that despite not knowing him very well, he comes to the right conclusions about him. And so in the case of Nazareth, we see, we can say that Jesus is amazed that despite them knowing him so well, they come to the wrong conclusions about him. Here's the point. In both cases, additional data would have not made a difference. Their minds were already made up. But even though miracles are primary signs signaling us to who Jesus is, there are probably other things that miracles do for us. And so it's not just about the signs they were supposed to be signaling to. It was also about the benefit that to have brought to the people of Nazareth. And here we see another warning. And God has been repeating this to us over and over in this series, and I think we need to pay more attention to it. And it is this, that our own belief will block us from experiencing all that God has for us. Your own belief will block you from experiencing all that God has for you. My own belief will block me from experiencing all that God has for me. And I cannot help but wonder, what could Jesus have done for the people he grew up with? if they had only believed. I can imagine Jesus living with these people for almost 30 years and they would have had all kinds of issues but he could not help them because his time had not yet come. And now he returns in the power of the Spirit and they are closed and this happens. They are closed off to him. And I cannot help but wonder what situations could have been turned around in Nazareth. What mighty works could Jesus have done for these people? And the tragic answer is that we'll never know. And maybe it's the same thing for us as well. What mighty works could God do among us and through us as a church? Maybe God wants us to be like the church in Acts chapter 4. And he says, great grace was upon them all. Maybe he wants our services to be like in 1 Corinthians 14, where God is so at work in each and every one of us that he says that unbelievers will fall to their knees and confess. They'll be convicted and they'll confess that God is truly here. I don't know what God wants to do with us, but here's what I know. We will never experience it if we do not believe. Maybe for us on a personal level, the issue is not that we do not believe, but the same way we have compartmentalized his wisdom, we have also compartmentalized his power. Oh, yes, Jesus can heal my spirit, but he cannot heal my body. Yes, Jesus can help in my anxiety, but he cannot fix my marriage. And Jesus is saying to us, like he said to the people of Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 23, How often have I longed to cover you? Like a hen gathers her cheek to be everything you want, you need, and more. But you were not willing. And I want to plead with us, yes, I already started, but I want to plead with us, let this not be our story in 2024. Jesus is reminding us today that he is much more than our narrow views of him. He is much more than our false images and our half doses of him. Here's a powerful prayer I read recently. It says we should tell God, I want to encounter you. Not as I think you are, but as who you know yourself to be. I want to encounter you, not as I think you are, but as who you know yourself to be. Do not let me block myself off from your greatness and power. And the good news is that Jesus promises that if we seek him, that if we come to him, we will find him. How can we be sure of this? We see it at the end of verse 5. says that even though Jesus could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief, he still lays his hands on a few sick people and heals them. I don't think this is, cause, this is because these few are the, are the remnant that somehow had faith when others did not. And so Jesus could heal them. Because verse 6 goes on to tell us that he is shocked at their unbelief. And so the only logical reason I can see for why he does this in healings at all is because of his compassion. It's because he's full of mercy. It's because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and his mercy never comes to an end. And this should blow us away. It should amaze us. Let me explain again. These signs are here for a purpose. They're not going to save that purpose. The people have blocked themselves off from Jesus' power. Yet somehow he still lays hands on some and heals them. And this year is hope for every one of us because it tells us that Jesus' compassion is greater than our stubbornness. That his love is greater than our unbelief. And isn't this the story of the gospel as well? That Jesus comes to his own and his own receive him not, but he still dies for them anyway. All we like sheep had gone astray and gone after our own way, but Jesus leaves the 99 and goes after people that are not looking for him. When the goodness and the loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, He saves us, not because of work done in righteousness, not because we deserve it, but according to His mercy. Brothers and sisters, God's mercy is greater, is greater than our own belief. And He's calling you to Him today. Come, come. It doesn't matter how far away from Him you are. It doesn't matter how long you have been chasing half doses. Come to Him. Oh, I like the way C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, God is not proud. He stoops to conquer. He will have us, even though we have shown that we prefer everything else to him. He will have us, even though we have put him in a box. He will have us, even though we've run after false images, even though we've run after half doses, and he's calling you today to come to him. And someone may be saying, "But Jesus wants faith. I don't have it. In fact, I think I'm closer to unbelief. I'm closer to unbelief. How can Jesus help my situation? How can he fix me? If I don't even believe. I have a story for you. There's a story in the Bible that is very similar. To the story of the centurion. It's in Mark chapter 9. A man's son has a problem. And this time Jesus requires faith. Unfortunately, the man has no faith. What does he do? Mark 9 24 says that the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus does not reject him. As weak as his faith is. As mixed with doubt as it is. Well, he intervenes on the situation. Oh, brothers and sisters, you may not have a lot of faith. Your faith may not be enough to amaze God like the centurion's faith did. But his grace is more than enough to amaze you. Your faith may not be enough to amaze God, but his grace is more than enough to amaze us. Our faith may not be as great as the centurion, but his mercy is greater than our own belief. And if we both say the same thing today like that man said, I don't even know what to do, but help my own belief. I've broken my life in so many pieces, but help my own belief. I do not think my marriage can be fixed, but help my own belief. Whatever that situation is, Jesus will lay his hand on you and make you whole. Can we rise to our (laughs) feet?
0: thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, we hope you join us in the mission of renewing Lagos with the gospel by sharing it, rating this podcast, and following us. These actions help us reach more people with the gospel. You can also connect with us on various social media platforms via the handle at City Church